Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking at chapter 6. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Let me just cut to the chase here this morning and let you know that this is going to be a sermon on money. Okay? We're talking about money today. Uh, The sermon series that we're going through here is called Life Together, Life in a Changing Community. And it shouldn't surprise you to know that it takes money to run a community and keep a community together. And whenever a preacher talks about money, there are a couple of temptations. One, there's a temptation of the people. Those of you today who are listening to this sermon, there's a temptation that you might be having right now, which is to shut me out and say to yourself, here we go again. Bob does his annual giving sermon, and I know what he's going to say. He's said it before, and... um, Here we go again. Maybe you're visiting the church and you've got it in your mind that the church is a place that's always pushing for money. They're always trying to get into my pocketbook. And I didn't think New Life was that kind of place, but here I am today. And now finally they're going to start talking to money. This is the last time I'm ever coming. I'm going to get out my smartphone and just tune this guy out. That's the temptation that you all might have right now. I want to encourage you to avoid that. The other temptation would be the temptation of, of the preacher. Because there is a temptation to uh, manipulate people for money. Uh, There is a temptation to heap a guilt trip on churchgoers by making people feel bad about the fact that they have money or about the fact that they're not giving more money. I want you to know I prayed yesterday that I would not do that. That's not my intent. I don't want to manipulate. But... I do want to explain what the Word of God says, and we have a passage before us here this morning that is very clearly about money. There's no question that that's what this text talks about in verses 17 to 19. This passage is the Word of God. God Himself is speaking to us through His Scripture, and that includes verses 17 through 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in fact, the Bible talks a lot about money. It talks about money maybe more than you realize, and it really shouldn't surprise us that the Bible talks about money so much, because quite frankly, we talk about money a lot, don't we? Or if we don't talk about it, we think about it a lot. Uh, We plan our lives to a large degree around money, the amount of money that we think we have or that we think we're going to have in the future. We worry about money. We argue about money. We dream about money. Many of us have financial planners to help us manage our money. Most of us don't like being asked about money. I always think that's very interesting, that this seems to be a topic that is just untouchable. You never ask somebody how much they make for a living, do you? Never do that. You never ask somebody how much they paid for their house. There's just something so private and so untouchable about money. It's like this sacred thing for all of us. And we certainly don't like being pressured about money. 
And so if you're starting to feel the pressure a little bit here today, I, I imagine that maybe some of you would look at this text and right away, looking at verse 17, where it says, as for the rich, that's how the passage begins, that you might say, well, I'm not rich, this passage isn't addressed to me, so I'm not included in this. Well, let me um, help put things in perspective. This is a game called Mall Madness. It's a board game for children. And the object of the game is you open the thing up, and the object of the game is to go through and buy as many things as you can in the store and get back to your car in the parking lot first. Whoever gets there first wins the game. That's Mall Madness. Now, I know probably very few of you have Mall Madness at home, but I would suggest that a game like that would only exist in a prosperous and wealthy culture. Now, I know that a lot of us are having certain financial struggles. Probably most of us don't really feel that rich. And so when we see Paul addressing the rich here, uh, we might think that doesn't really address us. But friends, we are in the midst of the most prosperous culture in the history of the world. Not all of us have as much money as others. Some of us are struggling. I understand that. The majority of us, I believe, could be categorized, relatively speaking, and compared to the people that Paul is writing to here in 1 Timothy 6, as people who are rich. This passage is for us in 1 Timothy. So, let's read this. Again, we're going through uh, various passages that are addressing our responsibility as a community. We started talking about church membership a few weeks ago. We moved from there to spiritual gifts. We talked about the importance of encouragement. Last week, uh, Dr. Strange was here for Reformation Sunday, and today we're talking about money. So please stand. Let's read this passage. This is Paul writing to a man named Timothy who was a leader in the church in Ephesus, and Paul is giving instructions to Timothy here uh, about the church And here's what he says in verses 17 through 19, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Lord God, we have come with open hearts, so let the ancient words of this scripture impart to us truth and grace for your glory and the building up of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Three things that Paul instructs us here very clearly in each verse here. uh, There's a different exhortation for us. And the first is this, the dangers of having money. Paul gives to us certain dangers that face us all if we happen to be people who have a certain amount of wealth. And the first one is this, pride. Pride is a danger of having money. So Paul begins, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. 
So here's Paul. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's leading the church. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got to tell your people, your people in particular, the rich people, you've got to tell them not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be arrogant, not to be high-minded about the money that they have. And there's many people who make this assumption if they have a, a difficult life or a hard life or a destitute life, sometimes people will conclude from that that God is punishing them and God hates them. Well, the other side of that coin is that sometimes if people live a charmed life, if they live a wealthy life, they think, well, that must mean that God is really impressed with me. That must mean that I've been living such a morally good and upright life that God just can't resist rewarding me with all sorts of wealth and riches. This must be a reflection of the fact that I am better than other people. And sometimes this can lead to a certain amount of contempt that people can have for the poor. You know, if only the poor would just live like me and make the decisions that I made and have my work ethic, they wouldn't be poor. They'd be rich like me. What Paul is saying to people who think like that is don't be arrogant, don't be haughty about your wealth. There's a number of passages that make similar warnings. Here's from Deuteronomy chapter Eight, we see the temptation to arrogance over wealth was real even centuries ago in ancient Israel. Here's what God says to the Israelites. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, in other words, when you're rich, then your heart might be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who saved you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the temptation of wealth. We get caught up in ourselves and we forget God. Proverbs 30, a similar sentiment here. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, just what I need, lest I be full and have too much and then deny God and say, who is the Lord? Who is this God? That's what wealth tends to do. There are a few things that can destroy a church very easily. One is a divisive spirit. Another is heresy, serious doctrinal error. And another thing that can destroy a church is wealth, prosperity. I wonder, is there any connection in the fact that the Holy Spirit seems to be moving, the church seems to be growing in areas of the world right now that are poor, Whereas here in the United States, where we've had so much prosperity over centuries, is where the church seems to be dying. Is there any connection there, do you think? Charles Wesley says this, said this, I fear wherever riches have increased, exceeding few are the exceptions, the essence of religion, that is the mind that was in Christ, has decreased in the same proportion. Wherever riches increase, typically concern about Jesus and the gospel, the afterlife, the scriptures, the kingdom of God, decreases in proportion to the level of increase in the prosperity and riches that a society enjoys. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to tell the people who have money to not be haughty. That's one danger of having money. The second danger is false security. False security. 
He goes on in verse 17. He says, not only charge them not to be haughty, but also charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Charge them not to put their hope, not to make a savior out of riches. That is, tell them not to lean on their riches to provide all of their needs. Warn them about the fact that money can very easily turn people's hearts away from Christ so that people think that somehow their money is going to save them. Don't, don't set your hope, don't adjust your level of contentment and your assessment of your relationship with God based on the amount of money that you have. There's a person that uh, said this. I'm not going to tell you who it is because you might be surprised. This person says, every person on the planet is living in a kind of bubble, trapped in, into programmed thinking that we're all expected to have a certain amount of material things to be perceived as worthwhile human beings. That is, that we think that when I get this amount of money, when I have this kind of house, when I drive this kind of car, when I live in that kind of neighborhood, then I'll know I'm okay. I've made it. And everybody can look at me and say, there is a good, decent, hardworking people, and I will be content. That's what it is to set hope on riches. The person who said that was Madonna. <laughs> it sounds like something that a preacher would say. But Madonna is right. There is this emphasis in our culture that we're saved, we're okay, we're justified by the amount of money we have. That's what Paul is warning Timothy, or exhorting Timothy to warn his people about. Encourage them not to do that, not to put too much hope in, in riches. I have a really good friend. I remember having a conversation with him years ago before I was married. We were just both out of college. Um, he had a pretty good job. He was making a pretty good amount of money. I was a newspaper reporter, so I wasn't making any money. And somehow we got into a conversation about how much money we had, how much he had in savings, and how much I had in savings. And I told him how much I had in savings, and he looked at me and he said, how do you sleep at night? That is an example of setting your hope on riches. He could sleep peacefully at night because he had a certain amount of money in his bank account. The Christian sleeps well at night because he has Jesus, because she believes in Jesus. That's our hope, not the amount of money that we have. The problem, according to Paul here, when we set our hope on riches, the problem with riches is that they're so uncertain, the uncertainty of riches. We have a lot of money, and then they're gone. Riches and wealth are so tenuous. Uh, in Proverbs, it says we should imagine that everything we own actually has wings. You should look at everything you own as if it has wings, because one day it's going to fly away. One day it's going to be gone. Money, wealth will provide much for you now. That's true. Money keeps the lights on. Money puts food on the table. Money keeps gasoline in your car. But one day money is going to exhaust its usefulness in your life. There's going to be a day when you're going to be 
lying there on the hospital bed, and the doctor's going to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do for you, and there's nothing more that money can do for you in that time either. Money will one day exhaust its usefulness to you, and that's precisely what the proverb says. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What you need, what I need, we need righteousness. We need the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we need, far more than riches. And what Paul is saying is charge your people not to put too much hope in wealth. Well, Paul goes on, and it's interesting that he, with great wisdom and balance, goes on to say we should put our hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you notice what Paul is saying here? Look what Paul is not saying here. Paul does not say that money is evil. And he does not say that it's wrong to be wealthy. And he does not say that if you have money, you have to give it all away in order to be a good Christian. He doesn't say everything you have, you have to give it to the church or you have to give it to the state. He doesn't say that. He says, quite to the contrary, that God is the giver of all good gifts, and He gives His people lots of things so that we can enjoy them. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The the house that you live in and the clothes that you have and the car that you drive are gifts from God for your enjoyment. And if you are one who is blessed with much, you don't have to feel guilty about that. God's blessed you, and you can enjoy what you have. That's what the text says, isn't it? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. But let's keep this in balance. What Paul is also saying is, nonetheless, there are dangers to having a lot of things and a lot of money, and there are duties as well. That's our second point. There's duties to having money. Paul goes on, verse 18, and he explains what we are to do with our riches. They are to do good, he says, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Interesting play on words there, right? He's talking about being rich, and then he says what we ought to aim for is not to be rich monetarily, but to be rich in good works, in the things that we do, in obedience to God, in service, in repentance. But I want to narrow this down and be very specific about this because I think the context indicates to us, the immediate context anyway, indicates to us that what Paul really has in mind here is the way we use our money. So when he talks about being rich in good works, I don't think he has in mind just kind of any kind of good work. I think he has in mind good works that are done primarily through the use of our money and our wealth. And I think that's confirmed at the end of the verse, because he says, they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous. To be rich in good works, it doesn't say and generous, as if the generosity is something in addition to the good works. It's the generosity is the way the good works are being done. Being generous being ready to share. And to make the context even more clear, 
we got to think about the context of this whole letter. Remember what I said at the beginning. This is Paul. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus. And what Paul says back in chapter 3 is this. This is just a couple chapters earlier. Same letter. Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, if it takes me some more time to get to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. 1 Timothy is written to instruct us how to live in the church. This is primarily about conduct in the church. This is primarily about people who have money in the church. The command to be generous with our resources is a command to be generous to the church, the household of the living God. That's what the context seems to indicate here. This is the duty of Christians with the money that we have is to be generous in giving to the church. Now, I'm going to take some time here to get you updated a little bit on some financial situations here at, at New Life. If you're a visitor here, um, we beg your patience, um, but these are important things for us to consider as a congregation, and you know, maybe this will be useful to you if you're a visitor, just to know kind of where we're at, financially speaking. Uh, I, I want to get you updated, first of all, on the pledge campaign, the Growing Together pledge campaign. This started back in November of 2011. This is where we had um, a, uh, a call to people to pledge money for the building of this facility, this sanctuary, and the offices, and the welcome booth, the foyer, etc. started three years ago. And we brought people in and served um, dinner, and we talked about uh, the money that was needed to make this happen, and we got pledges of $320,000. People pledged to give $320,000 three years ago for the building of this facility. And I'm very happy to report that almost 90% of those pledges have been received. And that's really good news. Uh, friends, you've done your duty. You've done what you said you'd do. You gave what you said you would give. And I'm grateful for that. And the leadership here is very grateful for that as well. We actually had uh, an additional $33,000 that was received above and beyond the pledges. Um, so again, that was a welcome contribution uh, to the building of this facility. Now, that pledge campaign actually is winding up this month, November of 2014. So this is a friendly reminder to those of you who made pledges and might not be done, uh, that you should continue and fulfill um, your pledges. But I also want to make note, friends, that although we were able to raise $325,000 plus through pledges, that this building cost more than $325,000. And we do still have debt to pay, and so any contributions that you could offer to helping us pay down the debt on this facility would be welcomed and encouraged. We do have some uh, pledge cards left over from the pledge campaign three years ago. Some of that information is going to be outdated, of course, but it'll have the information that you would need to know at the Welcome Center. So if you're interested in helping in that way, uh, I would encourage you to do that. So that's update on the pledge campaign. Now, <clears throat> let me um, talk a moment about the tithes that come into New Life here. 
on a regular basis. Our Old Testament reading was from Malachi, which talked about tithes, and God exhorted his people to tithe, that is, to give a tenth of their income to God and to the household of God. And it was very strong strong language, if you were paying attention. The passage seemed to say that when we don't tithe, what we're really doing is we're robbing God. Because what we have is given to us by God anyway, as our call to worship stated. And when we hold back what God has given us, we're robbing, we're keeping back from God what rightfully belongs to Him to begin with. Malachi 3. So a tithe is a tenth of one's income. That's what a tithe is. And that's what Christians are are called to do. If you're not giving a tenth of your income to the church, um, you're not really tithing. You're, You're donating which is good, and we appreciate that, but a tithe is officially a tenth of one's income. Okay, now I'm just going to throw some numbers out here. Follow me on this, okay? There's a number of numbers here, and I just want to present something to you. I just ran these in my head this past week and found the the results to to be interesting. We have here at New Life about 400 people who attend on a regular basis. Uh, We generally don't get that many in the service at the same time, but we have about 400 people who would consider New Life to be their place of worship. Not all of them are members, probably half about our members, um, which is fine, uh, but about 400 people. Now, that, of course, includes students, it includes children, it it includes people who might not be in a position um, to give on any kind of, of, of regular basis or at any significant level. So uh, I'm just going to throw out this number. Let's say that of those 400 people, we could uh, count on about 100 giving units. That is, either a family or an individual who would give to the church on a regular basis. Okay? 400 people attending 100 giving units. I think that's a pretty conservative estimate. Let's just say there's 100 people slash families giving to this church on a regular basis. Now let's say that the average income of those giving units is $50,000. Now let me stop here and say, I don't know how much anybody gives to this church. I have no idea. I I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. I don't know how much anybody gives. I don't know what anybody makes. And I don't want to know that information. I don't plan to seek it out. Uh, Ignorance is bliss. It's good to not know that information. And our treasurer and our deacons are very good and just keep me outside that loop. I don't want to know. So I don't have anybody in mind here. I, I don't, I'm not thinking of anybody in specifically when I give this sermon and give these numbers. The reason why I'm kind of throwing out these averages is because of what I just said. I don't, I don't really know what the average income is. I know $50,000 is higher than the average income in Delaware County. I understand that. But... I believe that the makeup of our congregation suggests that that's a pretty fair guess at what our average income uh, must be, about $50,000, okay? So let's, let's go from there. Uh, let's say that these giving, uh, these giving units are giving 10% of their income. They're giving a tithe. If you give a tithe of $50,000, that's $5,000, So a regular giving unit should be giving about $5,000 a year. Now multiply that times 100, 
That equals $500,000. Our budget for 2014 here at New Life is $425,000. And we're, we're below budget, by the way, now. Uh, it's pretty common for us about this time of year. $425,000, but you can do the math there and anticipate that we really, at the end of the year, ought to have a surplus of about $75,000. And we're not talking here about uh, non-giving units, just people who give what they can when they can. I mean, I know some of the students, maybe many of the students give. We appreciate that, giving whatever you can. Um, that's just all on top of what giving units give. At the end of the year, we ought to have 75 extra, 75,000 extra dollars, according to these figures. Do you know what we can do with 75 extra, 75,000 extra dollars? Well, we've been talking about a nursery here. You know, we have a temporary nursery right now that's in our old sanctuary. And um, the nursery committee has been very flexible and gracious in accommodating themselves to that place. But our desire is to have a new nursery in the old offices over there. But quite frankly, we, we don't have the money to do that now. It, it just seems to me that if everybody tithed, we could have a nursery in no time. And we could begin more aggressively paying down that debt. We could start pouring more money into our intended church plan, downtown Muncie. We could perhaps hire a, a children's director here, a full-time children's director. We could support more missionaries. You know what we can do if everybody would tithe? There is a lot of exciting things that can happen for the kingdom of God and the expansion of His church and the proclamation of His gospel if everybody would tithe. Now, I know this passage is not speaking specifically about tithing. I think we have to go to other passages. But I think I've established that what Paul is saying is that those with money in the church, which I think addresses most of us, should be generous, should be generous to the church. Friends, are you generous to your church? That's the duty, the duty of having money. But there's one last thing here. There's the delight of giving money. That, that's the third thing. We see this in verse 19. What does Paul say in verse 19? When we're generous and we're ready to share, what happens? Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Life is not found in the gaining of wealth and money. True life is found in taking what God has given us and giving it back in the service of His kingdom. That's where life is found. But back in verse 19, storing up treasure. What Paul seems to be saying here is that as we give, we're storing up eternal rewards for ourselves in the future. That's what the text seems to say. Now, I'm not preaching some prosperity gospel thing here. I'm not saying that if you give money to your church that... God's going to make you rich. You know, a lot of churches preach that stuff, and we don't believe that. We don't preach that. Giving money to your church is not going to necessarily result in any kind of increase in what you have. It's not going to, uh, you know, make you well if you're sick, necessarily. But there is a promise that if we give in this life, that there will be rewards given to us in the next life. 
The Bible says this in many other places. Here's 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Context here is the church. Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will be rewarded. Will receive what is due for them. Here, this is uh, a little more specific. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good, lend, give your money, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now, let me be clear here, friends. I'm not talking about buying your way into the kingdom of heaven or buying your way into heaven. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. The gospel is very clear. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Salvation is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it or buy it or purchase it. There's only one way to be saved. It is to put your faith in what Jesus has done in the life, death, and resurrection of the one true living God, Jesus, who lives now and forevermore. That's our only hope. You can't earn your salvation. Salvation has been earned, it's true, but it's been earned by Jesus and not by you. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can buy your way into heaven for one moment, but the scripture seems to be clear that there are eternal rewards for the good work that we do in this life. And this is given to us as an incentive so that we would be encouraged, so that we'd be motivated to want to give, to want to serve, to want to do good deeds, and thinking that, you know what, I am building up treasure for myself in the eternal life. There's motivation here, friends. There's many motives for obeying God. We might obey God out of gratefulness for the gospel. We obey Him out of love, of course. We obey God out of fear. That's true. The Bible says that. We obey God just because we want to please Him. Those are all proper motives. But add to that list the motive of gaining reward in heaven. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul seems to be saying here as well. There's just wonderful uh, encouragement here, friends. You know, others might not notice the things that you do. You know, the faithful spouse who has that really difficult husband or wife goes home day after day after day, and nobody sees the patience that that person is putting up. Nobody rewards that in this life. Or the single person faced with all sorts of sexual temptation and is fighting those temptations day after day after day. Nobody sees that. Nobody's going to reward that in this earth. No one's watching and commending you for that. The mother wiping the mouths of her kids day after day after day after day. Nobody's watching. Nobody's rewarding. The person who gets out the checkbook and writes that generous check, like the person who bought us these plants, I don't even know who it is, but that's why they're here, because somebody was generous. And that person who writes that check and puts it in the plate and nobody sees it and nobody rewards it in this life. But what the encouragement of the scriptures is that the day will come when treasures will be granted to those who have been generous in service to God's kingdom in this life. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. 
if we consider the unblushing promise of rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. There is much reward uh, for those who, who are generous, is what Paul is telling us, and that's one of the delights of giving away our resources. Well, as a way of showing um, uh, our desire as a church to be generous, uh, we are going to offer here this morning a copy of this book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving. Um, We're going to offer these for free to you today, and I know that sounds like manipulation, (laughs) but this is education, okay? It's different. We want you to read and understand what the Bible says about giving and the joy that is there for you when you learn to give. This is an excellent book. I've read it. It's wonderful. Um, John Piper here gives a testimonial. Some others here I haven't heard of. So anyway, this is a a good book. We have a hundred copies of these books. Now, I know we have more than a hundred people here, but we have a hundred copies and um, um, they're available at the Welcome Center. So when the service is over, Uh, Just head to the Welcome Center, and somebody will be there to provide you uh, a copy of this book. Uh, If you have the book, you know, please don't don't take one. Please take one per family. Again, we only have 100. If it turns out that all 100 are given away and there's more that are needed, we'll, we'll get those for you. But we want to get this book into your hands. Uh, And please don't just take it home and put it on your shelf, but actually read it. It's only about 100 pages long. And uh, I think will be instructive and encouraging to you so that you learn to be generous and so that, as Paul says here, uh, we together as a congregation can take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank and praise you, God, that you are a generous Lord who has given us everything we have to enjoy. And Lord, you have overwhelmed us with an abundance abundance of blessings. We praise you. We thank you. Help us to be people who are generous. Help us to give what rightfully belongs to you and use our generosity to build your kingdom for the glory of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.